Well, if you uh, want a haircut by Doyle and I, I think we're going to be starting a side business. So you just let us know, and we might be able to make that happen for you. Anyway, we're going to be starting a master class today. We're in week three. And as we jump into that, if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, what we're doing is we are trying to not only master some skills, Doyle and I, which I don't think we've mastered any yet, but we're also going to be attempting to master the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to be in Ephesians 3. And if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, you can open it up to Ephesians 3. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, Here's kind of the way that it lays out, is you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. New Testament is the stories of Jesus' life and death and ministry and resurrection. And so you have those in the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are called the Gospels. Right after that is the book of Acts, and that's the story and the history of the early church. And then after that, you have the book of Romans, and you see a bunch of different letters to different churches. Many of them, about 13 of them, were written to Right after that is the book of Acts. And then the book of Acts is the story of the early church and the history. And then you see Romans in a bunch of letters. Those letters are written by Paul, and Paul is writing letters to different churches that he has either planted or visited or somehow in relationship with. And in these letters, you see some really deep theology, but also some application of how to live out this Christian life. Well, we're going through the book of Ephesians, which is a book that, um, or a, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And here's kind of the big picture, is through this book, he is arguing that you as an individual and the entire world needs to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That on an individual level that you need to, to give your life over to him. And then it talks about some practical applications and kind of how that works out. But also that the world needs to come under his authority. And so there's a great illustration that I heard this last week, and it's from a book called My Heart, Christ Home by Munger. And he says this, he says, let's imagine that your life is a home. And many people come into a relationship with Christ by inviting them into their home because they have some kind of issue. Maybe it's a relational issue, maybe it's a sin, it's an addiction, something like that. And so you invite him into your living room or into your family room because you're having some relational conflict and you say, all right, Jesus, I need you to come and heal this. I need you to make this better. And so he comes in and, and he starts working out some of those issues and and pretty soon you realize that as he has worked out those issues in your family room, he gets up and he goes over to the refrigerator and he starts looking in the fridge and then he goes into your guest room and he goes into your library and into the bedroom and he just starts walking all over your house, looking into every closet and drawer and room, just trying to discover what, what's in your house. Well, you might be a little bit offended. You go, I thought you were just a guest here. But very quickly, he starts to make his way around as if he wants to own the place. And so he looks into your bedroom and he says, hey, let's talk about what's in there. He looks into your fridge. Let's talk about what's happening in there. He looks into your library. Let's see what you're reading and what you're looking at and what you're thinking about. See, the illustration is that as Christ enters into your life, he's not going to just stop at one part of your life. He's going to want access to everything. He's going to make his way into the fridge and say, hey, how are you treating your body? Into your study, where he's going to look at what are you reading? What are you looking at? What are you thinking about? Into your bedroom. How are you, um, how are you using your body? And is it according to the way that I want you to use it? And so he very quickly starts to make his way around the home and wants every part of it. And eventually he'll get to that hall closet. You know the hall closet that you've locked, that you won't let anybody into? That there's some kind of smell, something's starting to stink, and it's starting to rot, and it's starting to consume the entire house. He says, I want the keys to that closet as well. Now, for each one of us, that closet may look different. 
but he wants to know what's in that deep, dark place that you don't want anybody else to see. Because his goal is not to simply be a guest at your home. He wants to own it. He wants that home to be his. Because here's what he knows. He knows that you can't actually take care of your home. It's a mess. Things fall apart. It's a disaster. It's kind of like me giving the keys to my house to my five-year-old and say, okay, now I need you to maintain this place. He can't do it. And that's what Jesus eventually tells us is you can't maintain this place. In fact, why don't you just give me the keys, hand it over to me. I'll take care of this place. You're going to like your life a lot better. Well, that's really what being a Christian is. And that's what the book of Ephesians is about. It's trying to push us towards that direction is, hey, you need to give over all the different arenas, all the rooms of your house to him. So we're going to jump in and uh, we're going to see uh, in Ephesians 3, 1, that Paul, he begins his letter with a prayer, but he very quickly gets distracted. Paul is kind of funny because he's incredibly smart, but once he has a new thought, he seems something shiny, he goes in a different direction and it can be a little bit hard to track. So here's what he says in 3, verse 1, for this, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and so Paul was writing this letter as he's imprisoned in Rome, and he's writing it to these non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, and he's telling them about Jesus, whom many of them have already come to believe in. And he says up top, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. And he makes that an interesting statement because what he's saying here is he's saying, you're going to be imprisoned by something or someone. Everybody in the world is going to. That something will imprison you. It could be your career. It could be your family. It could be past shame and guilt and expectations. But there is only one thing in this world that when you are enslaved to it will not crush you. And that's Jesus. You will be enslaved to something. I don't care if you're religious or not. I don't even care if you believe in God. You will make your life about someone or something. And he says, if I'm going to be enslaved, it will be to Jesus. Then Paul goes off into a totally different direction. He just sees something shiny and he starts heading in that direction and talking about something completely different. So here's what I want to do. I'm not going to go like in order, verse by verse. I'm going to skip around a little bit because I'm going to try to connect some of Paul's thoughts and where he's heading and try to make a little bit more sense of it. And sometimes when we jump into the scriptures and especially a book like Ephesians and we start to read it, there's big theological concepts. It's kind of all over the place. And so we're tempted to just skip over and go, all right, get me back to a parable, a story, something I can more easily digest. But I don't want to do that. I want us to kind of do the hard work and sort through what exactly he's saying here. And so we're going to skip all the way down to verse 14, and then we're going to circle our way back around because that's kind of where his train of thought uh, um, leads. So here's what he says in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father... And so he's explaining all these theological concepts, which we're going to get back to. And then he goes to the application and he begins to pray for the church of Ephesians. And he says, I kneel down before the father. What this is signifying is he's not only praying, but this is a, a stance of humility and intensity because they mostly prayed standing up. And so as he kneels down, he says, I am serious about what I'm about to pray from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And so he's talking to the God of the universe. He says, the God who created all, who everything and everyone is under his authority. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being 
17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And so here, in essence, is what Paul is praying, is he is praying that the church in Ephesus, and also us, that we would take the love of Christ from being something that is purely intellectual, something that is in our heads, and moving it down into our hearts. Now think about all the things that Paul could have prayed for. In the midst of what these people are experiencing, they're, they're feeling persecution, they're in dangerous circumstances, they're facing disease, and what does Paul prioritize in that moment? He doesn't talk about their circumstances. He doesn't ha talk about what is, what's happening in their external life. He wants to talk about what's happening internally in their inner life. Because Paul knows that the inner life, if that is at peace, if you have the power, if you have the resources to face your external circumstances, it's far greater than having your external circumstances changed, but not having the inner peace and power and strength. And so Paul, instead of praying for all the things that are taking place around them, prays instead for what's taking place within them. And so he says this, my prayer is that, and you can almost see the passion that Paul is praying. He says, I just so desperately want you to experience the love of Christ. I want it to penetrate into your deepest, like, he calls it your inner being. It's sort of hard to explain what this is, but I think we all intuitively know what it is. It's kind of like our heart, our soul, it's, it's our will, it's our nature, it's our personhood, it's everything. It's deep, deep down. He says, I want this love to move from being an intellectual concept, something that you may affirm, into something that you experience. I want you to experience this kind of love, because if you experience this love, it's going to transform everything. We say around here, it's going to change everything. It's going to change the way that you look at yourself, your identity. It's going to change the way that you look out into the world. It's going to change the way that you interact with the world. It will change everything about you if you can experience this incredible love. Now, people look at this and they think, well, I, uh, I want to experience this kind of love. I, I would love to feel that kind of way. And Paul, that is his prayer, and the reason why he has to pray it is because most Christians, and I will include myself in this, if you can allow me to be that vulnerable, is we want to experience it because we haven't experienced it. And if we have experienced it, it has been very fleeting, that, that moment. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, I've had this this personal experience with Christ. Now, we know that Paul had different experiences with Christ. One, he had this, this, this conversion experience in which on the road to Damascus, he encountered the risen Christ and it forever changed him. But it seems as if he's having this moment in which the love of Jesus is just overwhelming him. He can't contain himself. It's just, it's something that has to, to explode out of him. And I've met people like this, and maybe you have to, maybe you are one of those people in which when they describe these experiences that they've had, like I have a friend who, he, uh, he has a pretty crazy story and a pretty crazy conversion experience, and he talked about as he was coming to Christ, how Christ just overwhelmed him so much so that he just collapsed on the floor crying because he was overwhelmed by Christ's love. 
See, that, that kind of love is the love that Paul here is talking about, and he has to talk about it. It's because most Christians haven't experienced that kind of love. I look at my own life, and yes, of course, I've had those moments of, of worship and prayer in which I know that Christ loves me and it touches my heart, but this kind of love in which it, the experience may be temporary, but the effects of the experience are lasting a lifetime is you look back and because of that experience, because you have experienced the love of Christ, you are forever changed. And see, Paul wants us to have that kind of experience. He says, I want you to move from this being a, a head knowledge to something that you know so deeply that it is almost more real than the external world itself is. That is how real this love is to you. There's a famous saying, it says that the longest journey is from your head to your heart. And that's true for me, is I oftentimes get stuck in my head in the intellectual side. I love philosophy and theology and arguments and I like, and I get stuck there. Oftentimes to my detriment, as my wife would tell you, is because I don't let things often sink into my heart. And you might be the same way, maybe because you're like me or maybe because you, when you think about God's love, you think there's just no way that he could love me like that. There's this barrier built up because of your, pay, your past shame and guilt or whatever it might be. And so, yes, you know that Jesus loves you, but you don't know that Jesus loves you. There's a survey that was taken a couple years back from some seminary students. It was an informal survey, about, a, I think, 150 students. And these are all people preparing to go into ministry. And out of the roughly 150 students, two of them said, yes, I've experienced that kind of love. The rest said, I know that he loves me. I believe it. I try to remind myself of it, but I don't know if I've experienced it or not. And I think that's where so many of us are, is we, we believe it, but we haven't experienced it. And the problem is that this kind of love, this experience is not self-generated. We can do nothing to make this happen. It's not something that we can work ourselves up and we can emotionally just, no, it's something that is poured into us. It's a, it's a love that, that is bestowed upon us from the outside in, not from the inside out. So what do we do? What do we do? I think all of us would say, especially all of us who are Christians, say, I would love to have that experience. But if I can't self-generate it, what can I? well, just because you can't self-generate it doesn't mean that you can't be open to it and seek it out. And as I was studying this, I was more and more convicted that I was not doing this is that I had become apathetic to experiencing this kind of love. That it was just enough to know it, but not, not to feel it. So Paul lays, us, lays out a, a couple, uh, couple different things that we can do along the way. He says that we can be deliberate. That if we want to experience God's presence, then we have to be deliberate. We have to be on our knees. You, you see the intensity that Paul has in these moments. He doesn't just walk down the street and go, hey, God, if you got time today, would you go ahead and, you know, show me your glory? Would you show up? Would you, you know, help me experience it? No, he is on his knees. He is serious about this. He is intense. He is begging God, please show up. We also have to be disciplined. Is once we've made up our mind that this is something that we want to seek out, that we want to know God in this kind of experiential way, that we have to actually be deliberate and disciplined in it. Just like anything, it takes discipline. We hate it, I hate it, you hate it. The gym's been closed, I'm not that sad about it the last few weeks, it's because we don't like discipline. And yet, if we want to experience God, it's gotta take place when we spend time with God. 
We have to do it on a regular basis. It also says that we have to be patient. Like anything, when we first begin to read the Bible, and you've probably done this, you open up the Bible and you go, I'm going to read the Bible. And so you go, Genesis. And then you get to all the way to Leviticus and you go, well, I'm not reading the Bible anymore because I don't understand any of these rules and these laws and they seem totally absurd and so I'm done. You're going to have to actually be patient and you're going to have to power through it. And then we have to be intelligent about it. As Paul says that we must grasp this truth. We must take hold of it. Because we must continue to fill our minds with this truth if we ever want it to sink down into our hearts. Is if something's going to penetrate your heart, it's got to first be in your mind. And so we have to continue to renew our minds when we're thinking about this. It also has to happen communally as, as Paul is praying for them. He's praying on behalf of them that they would experience. You need people praying for you just like I need people praying for me. And so we have to have other people around us continuing to push us. Okay, let's circle back because I'm afraid we're going to totally run out of time because I think I can go on about this all day. All right, let's go back. So Paul does this prayer. He skips around, but in the middle of it, he goes on this kind of this, this journey where he just rattles off all this theology. Here's what he says. Verse four, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Ooh, a mystery. That sounds exciting. So he says that there is this mystery of Christ, but he doesn't exactly say what it is. Verse six, he says, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And so somehow, whatever this mystery is, it is able to unite people who have been opposed, who have been at war, who have hated each other, able to unite them into one family, into one body under Christ or in Christ. So the Jews and the Gentiles, because of this great mystery, are able to come together as one. And Paul says that, his job is to make plain, verse 9, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mercy, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. And so Paul is going out there and he is proclaiming that this mystery has finally been solved. That God, this thing that he's been keeping secret for all of humanity, this plan that he's had, he is finally revealed in Christ. And so what is this great mystery that he's talking about? Well, first, you have to understand the word mystery. It's not the kind of mystery that you and I might think of, which is like a, um, maybe like a murder mystery, right? A whodunit kind of thing. Or maybe it's one of those escape rooms. What Paul means here is it's not a mystery that you can somehow figure out, that you can think your way through, that you can go and discover clues and arrive there. It's, it's a mystery in which you will never guess. You will never be able to conceive. It's so counterintuitive. You will never have figured out what God was doing this entire time. And so this mystery is counterintuitive, and it's also unlike anything that you've ever seen before. And it is the mystery of salvation. See, God has been writing this story throughout human history where he has promised that he would reconcile humanity and himself together. That this relationship has been broken and that he will mend it. And everyone along the way has thought the same thing. And you may even think this is the way that God is going to reconcile man to himself is that man has to do something in order to earn their way back to God. Every religion in the world says this. At the bottom of every religious claim is you do your part. You go and you be a good person, you do good deeds, and then God will accept you into heaven. Or you'll have 
karma. You'll have, you'll paid your karmic debt. You will, you fill in the blank, whatever your, your worldview is at the bottom of it. My guess is that somehow you are responsible for your salvation. You have to be good enough to go to heaven. You have to pay your karmic debt, but that's not what this mystery is. The mystery here is that in Jesus, you are, we just talked about this this last week, you are saved by grace through faith, not by your works, not by what you do. That is totally counterintuitive. Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you've heard this a million times, you go, yeah, yeah, I already know that. But just think about it. Every person in human history has intuitively thought, I will earn my way. And then Jesus comes along and says, you can't do it. You can't do it. You're too broken. Your sin is too great. There is no way for you to make up this debt that you owe to God. Someone's got to pay for it. And the way that you're going to receive this is simply by you accepting it. It's going to be a gift. And it's a gift that you receive through faith by believing in Jesus' sacrifice and giving your life over to him. And so this is completely backwards from the way that the world works. Not just religion, but think about the way that Jesus accomplished this. He said that I'm going to come to earth as the son of God, and I am going to triumph through suffering. I am going to win souls by losing my life. I'm going to express my power through weakness. You are going to be saved through submission. That is so backwards to everything that we know about the world. We, we want power. We want strength. We want to win. And Jesus comes along and says, everything that you thought you knew about the world is actually backwards. I'm going to turn it upside down, including salvation. So this mystery has been revealed, the salvation by grace through faith. And so here's what Jesus says next. The next step is verse 10. His, his intent was that now through the church, that's going to be important, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, that's going to be important, that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so let's back up for a minute here. Okay, we got we to look at a couple of these key words. One, verse 11, eternal purpose. What is God's eternal purpose that we keeps referring to? Well, the book talks about it. The Bible talks about it. the eternal purpose is to bring everything back together, together under Christ's rule, to make him the king of all. I think we can all look at the world right now. And if there is any time that we can agree that it's broken, it is now. As we look at the world and it is full of chaos, it is full of pain and suffering, things are falling apart, it is broken. You look at the disease and the violence and the relational conflict, societal conflict, the financial meltdown, and scripture tells us that the reason why all those things are happening is because of this thing called sin in the world. Sin is what separates us from God, and when we separated from God, everything else separated as well. Everything began to fall apart. He says, the only way for this to be put back together is not by you working harder, although you're going to have to do some work along the way. Ultimately, the way that this is going to be solved is you have to deal with the sin issue. And once that is dealt with through Christ, then the world can be put back together. And that's the mission of the church. That's what God is doing in the world is through the church. He is putting the world back together. He's taken all those broken pieces and he's saying, now I am going to use the church as a model. They're going to be like my pilot program, and it's going to be through them that you are going to see my wisdom and brilliance of how I'm going to put the world back together. It's going to be through this group of people. It's going to be through the church. It won't be one single person. 
It won't even be one single church. It'll be all of God's people consistently coming together and saying, we have a higher allegiance. Our allegiance is the kingdom of God to our King Jesus and to live as citizens in his kingdom. And so in this program that God is, is doing, he is, he's not only reconciling himself to his people, but people to people. The Gentiles and the Jews together, black, white, everyone is coming together in his name. He says eventually that he is going to heal all the relational and emotional and physical conflict that we see. And the church is supposed to be the example for the world, what this family can look like, what it looks like to live in God's economy, what it looks like to be a part of this new society that Jesus has launched. He says it is through the church that people will know what my plan for humanity is and my plan for their life is as well. Verse 12, in him and through him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. See, now that we have this incredible gift of salvation, we don't have to go to God in fear or in shame. Because if it was on our merits, we may never know where we stand with God. We're always wondering, did he see what I just did this last week? Is he angry at me? Where do I stand with God? That doesn't matter because it's all been taken care of in Christ. 13, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is what's great about Paul. He's in prison. He's suffering. And he goes, guys, don't worry about it because I have an inner peace. I have a strength because I understand the love of Christ and to serve and suffer for him is all worth it because the suffering is temporary, but God's glory is forever. And so I'm willing to suffer for him and for you so that he can be glorified. And then here's how Paul ends this chapter. At a really big end of his prayer, he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I got to tell you, I didn't know how to end this message until I heard that last part of the verse is because, if I'm going to be completely honest with you, I really needed to hear that this week. I needed to be reminded that God is a God who can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Because I don't know about you, but I'm tired. <laughs> this, this week, I hit a wall. I'm like, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. It has been the most stressful three weeks as a country for us. I mean, I'm not trying to complain and I'm not, I'm not a victim by any means, but as I look, I'm just emotionally exhausted. It feels like every week I wake up and I go, what kind of disease or violence or division are we going to see in the world today? And I'm just getting tired of it. And I, let me just be totally honest with you. I'm getting really tired of not being able to see you guys not being able to worship together, just us being separated as a church family. I'm just tired of all of it. When I read this, I thought, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. That's why we do what we do. Because we serve a God who can do immeasurably, immeasurably more than we could have ever imagined or asked for. And it brought me back to this simple statement that we've been saying week in and week out for the entire year. Jesus changes everything. That's right. That's right. That's where the solution is. Out of all the chaos and everything that's happening in the world and everything that's happening within me and all the frustration and the anger and the bitterness and the disappointment and the, all that stuff and all the stuff out there, I can't fix it. Neither can you. 
we can make it worse and we can make it a little bit better, but we, we can't solve it. This is the only thing that's going to solve it, is if we remember that Jesus changes everything. And, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I feel like maybe as a church, maybe as a community, maybe just as an individual, I kind of been sitting on the sidelines waiting to see what's going to happen next. Like, what's the government going to tell us? What's, what's going to happen with this conflict? What's going to happen with this disease? What's going to happen? And I'm really tired of just sitting by and watching what happens. I want to go out and I want to see some things change. I want to see Jesus change not only my life, but the community around us and eventually see him change the world. And so I got inspired this last week about seeing some people who are just tired of sitting on the sidelines. These people were doing what I think Jesus would do. They're cleaning up the messes. They're being salt and light. And we had some staffers that went down this last week and after the looters and the rioters came in and destroyed businesses, they went in there and people that they don't know and just started cleaning up and praying for them, saying, we're here for you. Whatever you need, let, let us know. And I thought, that's what we need to do. We need to pray. We need to get on our knees, like Paul says, and we need to start praying. We need to start serving sacrificially. We need to start giving. We need to start getting out there. We need to start loving on some people. I think it's time for us to get outside of our comfort zone. I don't want to sit idly by anymore. I don't know when the lockdown's going to be over. I don't know anything anymore. Here's what I do know. Jesus changes everything, so I'm going with that. And so, I don't know what God's calling you to do. We're doing a lot here at Seek Us, and we're trying to follow where God's leading us and how to serve best and how to give back and how to care for people and how to... I don't know where God's leading you, but here's what I want to ask you to do. Be open. Be seeking. Be looking for it. God, I want to experience your love in a greater way, and I want to be used by you in a profound, life-changing kind of way. I think if we do that, we will see Jesus change everything. Let's pray. Lord God, many of us just need, um, need to experience your love. Lord God, all of us need to experience your love, but some of us are, are finally hitting a wall. Maybe some of us have hit it a while ago. Maybe some of us haven't hit it quite yet, but all of us, we need you to show up in a real and profound way, Lord God. Not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the people around us so that we can go out and we can be your hands and your feet. And so allow us to have this love go from our heads into our hearts and then eventually come out in action through our hands as we serve the people around us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We can't wait to see what you are going to do in us and through us. In your name we pray. Amen.